As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. You are listening to the C.S. Lewis Podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath, brought to you by Premier. I'm Ruth Jackson, and over this third series, Alistair and I will be looking at some of the key themes and ideas in the Narnia Chronicles. You can find out more about this series, as well as C.S. Lewis and Professor Alistair McGrath, by heading to cslewispodcast.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. On today's episode, we will be focusing on the magician's nephew. We're going to be focusing in this show on The Magician's Nephew, which is now the first book in its publication order. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't written first by any means. And you called it a prequel earlier. Alistair, wh- why have you called it a prequel? I've called it a prequel because if you read The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe first, you're left wondering not simply where is this going next, but how did all this happen in the first place? And so, if you like, Lewis has created a double appetite, an appetite to know what happens next, but also an appetite, how did Narnia come into being and who are these people we hear about? And so, if you like... um, we're dealing with the backstory. In other words, Lewis is telling us, in effect, how Narnia came into being. But the point I would want to make is that your your desire to know about the history of Narnia is created by the Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe, which naturally wants you to make, wants you to go back and forward at one and the same time. But what I will say is that although I personally think that the Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe ought to be read first, actually, you know, you still get a lot out of beginning with the magician's nephew. There are lots of themes unpacked in The Magician's Nephew, but what we see right from page two of this book is um, Lewis dives straight in with a really difficult topic. We see when Diggory first meets Polly uh, that he starts to explain why he's so sad, which is that his mother is dying. Um, Do you think a large reason for him having this as such a key part of the story is because of Lewis's own mother who, who died when he was quite small? I think that's part of it. I think that um, Lewis, once in his correspondence with his best friend, Arthur Grieve, um, said that when you are distressed or worried about something, one of the best ways of dealing with it is to write about it. And I wonder if this is almost like a therapeutic form of writing, that Lewis actually is, is going back to his own 
childhood and confronting what probably was the most difficult and distressing part of his childhood and recognizing that other children may have had comparable or similar experiences and therefore wants to get away from the idea that childhood is really all about good times, that there are dark times as well. And I think that uh, you know, it's possible to criticize Lewis for trivializing this, but I don't think he does that. I think he's recognizing this is a really distressing thing, and certainly he expects some of his readers to be able to say, I had something like that too, that connects with me. And do you think the tragedy of C.S. Lewis losing his own mother is perhaps one of the reasons why Diggory's mother is healed in the end in this book? I often wonder, as I think about C.S. Lewis's life and reading The Magician's Nephew, if actually... Lewis's mother lived on in his imagination. I think that Lewis was always looking for a mother figure. That's one of the reasons why his relationship with Mrs. Moore is so important, that actually she almost became a mother to him. And I, I think we, you know, that, that is an important point to make. So I think certainly there's an element of self-disclosure going on here. And obviously this was written before he lost joy to cancer. Do you think there would have been a different outcome had he written this after losing both his mother and his wife? I think that's a very interesting question, but it's very difficult to speculate. I think what we can say is that um, in a letter to Dorothy L. Sayers, um, uh, reflecting on Joy's illness and death, that uh, Lewis really brought home how how death helped you to realize how much you loved someone. And I think that that, that is a, a very helpful way of going back to Lewis's relationship with his own mother, that actually maybe he didn't appreciate her properly and then she died and he had not, he had not known her well enough, he'd not appreciated her enough. I mean, that might be what's going on there. So I think that there may be this element of trying to bring out in the early chapters of The Magician's Nephew how important that mother was. And do you think if Diggory's mother hadn't been healed, he would have trusted Aslan in the same way that he clearly does? I think that that's a really interesting question. Um, I'm, um, I'm, I'm very clear that Lewis saw suffering as a major concern. But he was very, very clear, I think, that this was not so much a matter of testing his own faith. He has that wonderful line in A Grief Observed, um, God hadn't been trying an experiment on my faith. Uh, he knew it already. It was I who didn't. You know, this, this idea that, in effect, um, it, it's, it's about self-discovery. And I think that is a, an important point. But personally, I, I think that... Um, Lewis makes it easy in the opening chapter of The Magician's Nephew. And the question you're asking is a good one. Where, where would the story have gone? What would have happened if the mother had died? We don't know. There is a brilliant line as well, isn't there, where it's talking about how sad Diggory is. And then it says um, he wasn't even sure all the time that he'd done the right thing. But whenever he remembered the tears in Aslan's eyes, he became sure. There's that beautiful depiction as well, isn't there, of Aslan's tears um, and, and Diggory's focusing on, on the lion's feet and then he sort of raises his eyes and sees just these massive tears. I mean, is, is that the way that, that Lewis view God? That is a theme we find in both the problem of pain and a grief observed. In both cases, although the approach in the problem of pain is quite rational, that in um, a grief observed is more emotional, it is by thinking about the love of Christ that 
Lewis secures resolution. And so in The Magician's Nephew, we have a beautifully poetic description of this, which reminds me of, um, you know, the, the pietas, you know, people reflecting on, um, you know, Christ's suffering, his tears, as a, and, and taking consolation from that. And I, I do think that, that Lewis really is bringing home that actually this is not really an intellectual issue. It's something deeper than that. It's a relational issue that, in effect, um, Aslan's tears are an indication of God's commitment, compassion, and distress at our distress. And I think that Lewis does echo that point at several um, points in, in um, his writings on suffering. And it is an important point, I think. Yeah. And, and, and just that little bit about when he lifts up his eyes, there's a line, isn't there, where he says uh, he thought for a moment that the lion might really be sorrier than, than Diggory himself was. So just that sort of compassion heart of God. And I know we've talked about suffering in a previous show. We've also talked about hope. But where does hope come into this story? Because it's not just, as you say, it's not just bleak. There is hope coming into the story as well. I think hope comes into this story. And indeed, hope is a fairly constant theme throughout the Narnia Chronicles, because in effect, Lewis is constantly trying to make the point that we don't simply journey through time you know not like a, talk, a clock ticking you know, we're, just, we're just existing there's clearly a sense of purpose a sense of importance but from my in my view the most important thing of all a sense of being accompanied you know even when you go through periods of suffering you are not on your own because Aslan in this case is with you uh, is shedding tears for you you know and cares for you and again that that means you journey in hope and that's a pretty constant theme throughout Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. There's a line um, in the book where Polly Polly's sort of talking to to the horse and to Diggory and he's talking to, she's talking about Aslan says wouldn't he know without being asked and the horse responds by saying I've no doubt he would but I've a sort of idea that he likes to be asked now is that how c.s lewis viewed prayer that actually god already knew knows everything but he still wants us to ask or, or, or is that just is he just articulating one aspect of prayer do you think i think lewis is quite a rich um idea of prayer we find that in, in his letters to malcolm um but certainly one important aspect of it is that prayer is relational this is just what you do it's natural to turn to god um to ask for things to for, to pray and so on and i think lewis is really trying to bring it out that um you're not really bringing a shopping list to god you're not kind of way in this in a sort of um, commercial transaction it's much more a relational thing in which it's natural for you to bring your burdens to God and offer them to him and again I think that, that the idea you might get something out of this is, is, is part of it but it's only a small part I think that much greater um, part of it is that you are able to approach God and bring your cares before God, knowing that God shares those concerns. So I think that, that's a very important thing, and it's certainly echoed in the quote you've just given us. Now, there's a beautiful depiction, isn't there, of Aslan singing Narnia into creation. But what was Lewis's opinion of how the world came to be? Was he sort of purely creationist, or did he have a concept of evolution, or was it kind of a combination of the two, or was it something completely different? Well, that, that's, let's look at that idea of Aslan's singing because it, it's really very interesting because one of the things about Lewis's writings is he uses image of light vision a lot and hardly ever does he use images relating to sound or music and this is perhaps the standout 
example. And the fact it comes right at the beginning of this narrative, you know, is, is actually very important because singing is about harmony. See what I'm saying? It's about a harmonious creation. That's very important. So does this harmonious creation happen instantaneously or is it a process? Well, Lewis, Lewis um, in thinking about the whole idea of biological evolution, Lewis really makes two points which are not inconsistent. Number one, as a scientific theory, he thinks evolution is okay. Number two, he still finds it very difficult to actually visualize this. You know, it's still very, very hard to believe. And he holds these two things side by side. In The Magician's Nephew, he's not going there. He doesn't really raise that issue either explicitly or even implicitly. The point he's trying to make is that creation is about an act of creation of beauty. Now, again, that's why the singing is so important. It's not just a functional creation. Here's something that works. It's something that is right from the word go endowed with beauty. I think that's a really important point to make because um, one of the things that Lewis does mention at, at several points in his writings is uh, the human desire to try and recapture the harmonies of God and to try and try and capture something of the beauty and the harmony of nature. And we can see this point laid out so clearly there right at the beginning of this novel. The book says that uh, Uncle Andrew disliked the song very much because it made him think and feel things that he didn't want to feel. What's going on there then? Well, I think that there are several ways of reading that. The way I think I would read it is this. I think what Uncle Andrew is saying, Uncle Andrew's not a very nice person, okay. Um, and what um, Lewis seems to be saying is even those who are disinclined to believe in God or take faith seriously can still not help being moved by the beauty of nature and wondering, wondering if it's pointing to something beyond it. So I think there's a hint of recognition here that a lot of people who would never admit it actually are drawn to think about the deeper meaning of our world and ourselves because there are signs of God's presence, signs of God's creatorship embedded in the creation. So we've looked a little bit about creation, but what do you think was Lewis's view of the fall? Well, Lewis clearly um, knew all about the theology of the fall and also about the way in which the fall is a very significant theme in a lot of English literature. So Lewis really is coming to this with a, a very fully developed understanding of what this is all about. But I think that um, one of the points that Lewis is making here is the, the goodness of creation. You know, that God does not create an evil world, but it's a world within which evil, unfortunately, can emerge and can flourish. And therefore, Lewis is raising almost immediately a question which is going to address in much more detail in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which is, well, if evil comes into the world and it's not something God wants there to be, what can be done about it? You know, in effect, if you like, it's almost like um, beginning to unpack the vision of creation, fall, redemption, and the hope of heaven. So in effect, he's, he's planting in his reader's mind this idea, look, um, can you see um, evil is beginning to make a presence? What can be done? And it's, it's a very important marker for understanding how this begins to unfold. 
And you mentioned evil there. We do see evil quite a lot with the presence of Jadis, Jadis, however you're meant to say her name, the witch. But but does Lewis always think that good will triumph in the end? I think Lewis has this idea that in the end, um, good has to triumph. Partly because, um, you know, in terms of its own status, it's better than evil. But perhaps more importantly, because good is able to inspire people. I think that's a very important point. But I think it's, it's worth bearing in mind here that Lewis, if I can put it like this, Lewis is a scholar. He knows all about magic in the Middle Ages. And he knows that in the Middle Ages, magic is used in two quite different ways. Magic is understood for by a lot of people to mean simply understanding how our world works and as a result being able to do certain things that might heal people and so on. And then a second sense, magic is about a force which allows you to dominate, to take control, to achieve your will rather than God's. And what Lewis, I think, is trying to do here, though he doesn't use this language explicitly, is to contrast different kinds of magic. And the key point is that the wrong kind of magic is in effect being used by uh, Jadis, Jadis, <laughs> people do have a debate about this. And I think it's, it's very important to realize that Lewis is trying to make the point that something that has potentially a good use is being abused here. Now, allegories are used a lot throughout the Narnia Chronicles. How much of this story is pure fiction and how much of what he's talking about is very much intentional allegory? Well, it is pure fiction in the sense that Lewis has sat down and created this. Um, there's very little um, explicit citation, even from the Bible. Uh, it's, it's, it's Lewis's own narrative. He constructed it, but you're quite right that, in effect, he's clearly influenced by um, Christian ideas, by Christian um, references, by themes, and also um, ideas he finds in other literature. And one of the things you, you notice about um, Narnia is there seems to be quite a lot of Plato mm -hmm. in Narnia. I'm sure we'll come back to that later. That's a very interesting point. But certainly what Lewis is doing here is really interesting. Um, it's often said that the most creative people are actually the most derivative people. What, what, what's meant by that is that very often a very creative writer will take themes from hundreds of other writers they've read and weave them together into something new. And I've seen articles on the sources of Narnia. Well, you know, talking about hundreds of authors that Lewis is referencing implicitly and weaving together. But you'd never know it. It's done so skillfully. And what Lewis is really doing here is weaving together uh, a tale which draws on so many sources. Yeah, it's, it's authentically Lewis. It, it's, it's unique. It, it's distinct. And that, to me, is really very important. There does seem to be some sort of explicit things, like, for instance, um, a, a look at the substitutional atonement, where Aslan says, I will see to it that the worst falls upon myself as Adam's race has done the harm. Adam's race shall help to heal it. it I mean, that's presumably quite intentional allegory, is it? That's absolutely intentional. And, and we see that theme, of course, in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Although what you notice is that Lewis doesn't really develop this explicitly. He, he is not, if I'm put like this, writing a theological textbook. What he is trying to do, I think, is to retell the story of creation, fall, and redemption in a way that um, is not a substitute for 
um, theological reflection, but if you like, prepares you for it. In fact, it plants these ideas in your mind and it encourages you to follow them through in your own time. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about the Chronicles of Narnia. They're like a gateway to a wider literature. It's almost as if Lewis is saying, come in through here, discover what I'm hinting at and move on from here. You've mentioned already that Uncle Andrew is a fairly unpleasant character. Is he based on anyone in C.S. Lewis's world or does he represent a kind of body of people or an organisation or was it, again, just a kind of made up character? Well, it is a made up character, um, but I, I've often myself wondered just who he has in mind, because clearly uh, he's described so well that you you begin to think, actually, I, th- I think Lewis has somebody in mind here and you're not, you're not quite sure who it is. I, I personally have not really found anyone who I could point to and say, that's who Lewis has in mind here. But certainly, you know, many people reading it will, will, will actually chuckle a little bit and they'll, they'll think, that, you know, it's quite clear that this guy is not a good guy. <laughs> And is Jadis the Witch meant to just be a kind of representation of evil in general? Or again, has has Lewis sort of created her in a specific way um, so that she depicts something that he has, uh, you know, in mind, a particular person or organisation or or theory or something that was going on in, in his time? Or is it just a kind of general depiction of evil? I, I'm sure you could argue that... Um that Lewis has some particular theory or some particular person in mind. I'm I'm not so sure. I think one of the themes I see um, here, for example, and also in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, is that, in effect, um, humans are very vulnerable and they can easily be taken over by their own desires, which in the end overwhelm them and you cannot break free from them. You think, for example, of you know, Eustace in... in um, and the dragon, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure. But in this case, I wonder if the same thing is true. Uh, Lewis almost seems to be saying that um, we have a propensity to be overwhelmed by evil. And once we're trapped, we can't break free. So as I read this passage, I have to say I often ask that question. Are we dealing with an oppressor or someone who's been taken over by this evil that Lewis talks about in rather cryptic terms um, earlier in the narrative. There's a slightly terrifying line um, about the witch. I mean, there's lots of terrifying things about the witch, but um, it says, I spoke the deplorable word. A moment later, I was the only living thing beneath the sun. Are we meant to know what the deplorable word is that Jadis speaks? Or, Or again, is that something that sort of Lewis purposefully leaves slightly mysterious? He leaves it um, hanging in the air. We, we're not told what the deplorable word is. I mean, it seems to be a spell. It comes from the, the world of Chan, um, which, of course, is now dead. Um, and it is clearly a spell which would destroy all living things apart, of course, from the person who spoke it. Um, and there's, there's a backstory here. Um, Lewis doesn't actually mention what it is. Um, he doesn't name this word. And maybe that's because he, he doesn't really want to go there. I think that he, he's trying to emphasize there is a backstory that's all to do with the, the, the abuse of power. And in many ways, I think it's, it's trying to refocus on the narrative that's being told in The Magician's Nephew rather than the narrative that precedes it, if I can put it like that. Now, do you think the places that are mentioned in The Magician's Nephew, again, are meant to 
uh, represents something specific that, that Lewis has in mind. So you've mentioned Charn, which is kind of dark and silent and broken and grey. Narnia, which is obviously kind of the opposite of that. But then there's also the the world between the woods, which is this kind of nothing place and silent and, and everyone seems to be drowsy all the time. Are they just, again, pure elements of fiction or, or was there something that Lewis had in mind when he was fashioning these places? Well, I mean, if you look at the wood beyond the world, I mean, actually, that, that's uh, uh, from an 1894 novel by William Morris, um, which, again, um, does have this idea of the interface of an imaginary world with the real world. And, and maybe that actually he thought some of his readers might pick up on that. But in many ways, it's it's an important device that he has to um, has to weave into the narrative to give it coherence and also to, if you like, provide a unifying theme among the later Narnian novels. The question is, are they disconnected or is there this central theme that in some way all these stories are interconnected? And in many ways, you know, the, the world, world between the woods is kind of a way the representation of the fact that multiple stories can somehow find a way of connecting with each other. So I'm not really quite sure if Lewis has any particular physical location or anything in mind, but certainly as a, as a device, it's very important. Well, what a great way to end because we are going to be looking for the next few shows at how these multiple stories do connect together. But thank you so much, Alistair. Thank you so much. It's been great fun. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath, brought to you by Premier. I'm Ruth Jackson, and if you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. You can find out more about this series, as well as C.S. Lewis and Professor Alistair McGrath, by heading to cslewispodcast.com. Next week, we will be looking at The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. 